Dolan Mercer on Manx Radio. Faster Mai, good afternoon and welcome to Perspective. On the programme this week... At the moment, my view is that there are more officers who are keen to get the change to happen than there are senior politicians. And but isn't that the role of the Chief Minister? Yes, yes, it is. I'm trying to be delicate here. I, 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 I'm tiptoeing round this. Maybe I shouldn't. Howard doesn't like change. He's comfortable. It would require a change of Chief Minister in order to achieve it. Towards a government which serves the people... That was the title as Chris Robertshaw, MHK, gave a public talk at a meeting of the Positive Action Group this week, 12 months before a general election in which he does not plan to stand again. He looked at what structural changes he feels must be made in order for government to become more responsive and agile in a rapidly changing world. As we heard, he said political will is what's stopping positive progress, and that wholesale reform of government would require a change of chief minister. In this programme, we're going to hear what Mr Robertshaw had to say in his speech in full. There was also a question and answer session afterwards. But first, at the Manx Legion Club in Douglas on Monday the 28th of September, Roger Tomlinson addressed an audience of around 60 people. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this Positive Action Group September meeting. It's really nice to be back because our last meeting was in February, I think. So it's great to see you here. I didn't expect quite so many. Some people I've talked to are disappointed that there is not as many people as uh, they've seen in the past, but I'm delighted with the turnout and I welcome you all, whether you've been here before or not. What to expect? Well, we'll have, I'll introduce our guest speaker in a second. Um, he will speak for 20 to 30 minutes about his chosen subject, which he knows <laughs> everything about. And then That's we're going to have to go to you to ask questions and make comments. Some of you even like to make a little political speech. Yep. We're happy with that, as long as it's not too long. So, if you've got a mobile phone, it would be a good idea if you could turn it off so the speaker isn't interrupted. This particular session is being recorded by Manx Radio and will be played on Sunday's <coughs> Perspective programme. And Dolan Merson is here in the front and Matty Cunningham is in charge of sound. So if there's anybody when it comes to the question time that doesn't want to be on the radio, uh, we can arrange for that and Dolan will mask over your voice. So. Don't be inhibited by the fact that Manx Radio is here. We're delighted to see them. They've been a friend of Positive Action Group for many years. So um, welcome to Manx Radio, as well as welcome to our audience this evening. Tonight's talk is towards... I'd better put my glasses on for this. <laughs> towards a government which serves the people. Now this is something that our guest tonight, Chris Robertshaw, MHK, has been uh, promoting for a number of years now. I think it goes back to about 2013, 14? No, no, before that. Or even before that. So you can see it, it takes some time for our political ideas to germinate in the Isle of Man, as you all know, and eventually we get round to it. And I hope that in the next Parliament, and remember this time 
next year, this time next year, we'll have a new intake of MHKs. Those MHKs will select a new chief minister. And uh, off we go again. So <laughs> let's hope that tonight's meeting will sow the seed for this particular idea about the reorganization of government. Well, let's hope that that seed will get accepted, take place, and grow, and get implemented. Many of you will know South Douglas MHK Chris Robertshaw. No, East Douglas. East Douglas it is. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> um, he's been a successful businessman on the island for over 35 years in the hospitality sector. And we all know what sort of recession the hospitality section is going through right now. So that is another string to his bow which he's very interested in. And before he retires next September, September um, I hope that he'll have some good news for those of everybody who is interested in the hospitality sector, which is all of us, because we want uh, a buoyant hospitality sector. Chris has been an MHK for 10 years. Mm -hmm. He was first elected in 2010. I'm sure Lee will correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, he was then, and that was at a by-election. In 2011, he was re-elected, and again in 2016. So that's his 10 years of service to the Isle of Man political scene. He's also been a very influential minister. He was minister for social care from 2011 to 14, and also he was community and culture and leisure uh, minister in 2014. And then he moved on to policy and reform for 2014-15. And then he stepped out of government for his own very personal reasons, I think. We'll discuss it. <laughs> um, he's also been has served on various committees of Tinwald and he is exceptionally keen on promoting scrutiny. Now believe it or not, this particular government, the Quail government, has improved the scrutiny of their operation uh, in the last five years and I'm very glad that that has happened. Can I, can I correct you there? The yep. parliamentary side has improved the, parliamentary the, side, yes. has the, improved the scrutiny, side, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> uh, one of the committees he was on was the Comin Single Legal Entity Committee, and that was in 2017. And that is what the topic of tonight's um, speech is about, because they reported in June 2017 with, believe it or not, an interim report. Now, I, for one, have not seen the final report. It just seems to have died a death. But I'm sure that Chris, or perhaps even Chris Thomas, who's sitting in the, in the audience tonight, can put us right on that and uh, perhaps correct me on that. Without further ado, please put your hands together. Chris Robertshaw. Roger, thank, thank you very much indeed, and, and I do hope that I can manage to squeeze a huge amount of information into half an hour, and if I fail miserably, please forgive me, Roger. So here we go. So tonight's uh, title, 
uh, of the speech towards a government that serves the people. A question I have found myself asking regularly since being elected. Has been, and it's been a question that has jumped out uh, from, uh, from a whole range of issues. And, and I suppose the best way to describe it is as, as I've migrated through my time in politics, uh, I've regularly found myself asking the question, um, is, is government there for the people or are the people there for government? And I'm afraid to say to some extent, as I, th I hope to explain here, it's somewhat the latter rather than the former. We all know that we've got a general election coming up in not too distant future now, and we all know the, the frustrations that exist in this whole process of a general election. The, 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 the call that comes out fairly regularly from a number of sources about we need party politics, and I get that. I don't agree with it, I don't think it'll work, but I understand the frustration that exists in the electorate not being able to express itself in terms of how the policies roll out. As a, a house matures, the sense develops of hopes dashed and then we go through the whole process again. And an awful lot of what we do as the electorate is to focus on personalities. Everybody I know uh, who votes does their best always to try to, in their opinion, choose the best people for their constituency. I absolutely understand that, but what I want to talk about tonight is the machine that is government that's behind that, and that's the thing that has to be fixed. So if your MHK was the driver of a vehicle, you could change the driver as often as you like, but if the machine, the car itself, doesn't drive well, that process becomes wasted and frustrating. And I think that's, to some extent, where we are. So what I want to do tonight is, is draw a curtain aside and share with you my experience over the last 10 years and talk about the things that I've come to realize are extremely important and must be fixed. What I intend to do is, is give some examples of failure. I could spend a half an hour just doing that, but I, what I'm going to do is focus in terms of where things haven't worked well on recent uh, failures or weaknesses. I will also touch on my own personal journey through the 10 years of serving as an MHK with you. And then I'll try to uh, discuss with you what I think good looks like. What's actually wrong, and why is it proving so hard to fix? First of all, I have to tell you, and I'm sure some of you realize, but it's worth <coughs> repeating, there is no such thing as the Isle of Man government. It simply doesn't exist. It's a figment of our imagination, and it's something that appears on letterheads, the Isle of Man government. It doesn't exist. What we actually have are effectively a number of independent departments. They stand alone and they are the legal entities, not the government. That's where the concept of silo government and, and individual fiefdoms come from. And that's what an enormous amount of the problems emerge from because of that structure. Also, I have to say that too often, and, and, and 
I've no wish to be derogatory because I think most people most of the time go into politics for the right reason. I really do. But the way our system works, it plays to political egos. It plays to ministerial egos. And what happens, because somebody reaches, if you like, the pinnacle of being a minister, misinterpretation of their role starts to develop because their reputation and their ability to get re-elected is immediately related to the department they're in rather than the greater good of what matters in terms of the government's overall policy. When I was in the Council of Ministers, I saw that regularly. You'd see us all sitting around the table, each with our own worries about what we were trying to achieve and the difficulties that we had in our departments. And you were so preoccupied with that that you hadn't got the time to think about what the problems in the other departments were. And each minister was somewhat like that. So you were automatically a silo that was trying to get a particular argument forward. And it was almost as if there was an attitude that, well, look, please support me in what I'm trying to do. I'll support you, what you're trying to, to achieve. And as a consequence of that, it wasn't joined up government. Remember that we politicians are birds of, of passage, effectively. We're in for a period, it might be five years, it might be ten, it might even be longer. But we're birds of passage. What we're dealing with, the machine of government, is there for an awful lot of the time and people can be in for years and they are the professionals running the administration. The effect of that has been that because a chief executive's responsibility within a department in accounting terms and everything else is his or her responsibility, that gains precedence over everything else. It's not unusual for, I'll choose my words carefully here, for a chief executive to guide a minister in, in the direction he or she wants to, to take the minister. So it sort of then begs the question, where does the responsibility lie? Is it with the politician or is it with the individual department? The next issue is this whole matter of being a new member. Now, we had a lot of new members at the, at the last election. We had 12, which was a lot. I'm right in saying, I'm positive I'm right in saying that, that 12, those two, 12 new members are now up to speed. It took some time for members to get to understand the difficulties of what they were in. They came in with good, in good faith. But it takes time to get your head around the, the whole system. But here's the problem. When a new member is elected, they're immediately then, or, well, within a matter of a few weeks, allocated a department. And then they get an increase in pay. I can't remember. I, I've never done it, so I don't know what it is because I've never been a departmental member. I always refused. But being a departmental member gets you an extra 10 or 13,000 pounds. But it, it buys you, effectively, into loyalty to the department. I'll just read you something that uh, Lord Lisvane said about this. Lord Lisvane, as you may be aware, did a, did a review of our parliamentary process. He said this. He said, I do not believe the system of departmental members is remotely sustainable. The issue of patronage and the perception of reality that members are receiving significant salary enhancements for a role that at worst may be unnecessary 
is reputationally a reputational liability. And I, I actually put that in my manifesto uh, in 2016. I totally agree with it. New members coming in don't know any better, and they get this allocated responsibility and always do their best to deliver on it. But actually, they're being trained to think in the wrong way, and to some extent, they are being manipulated. Because what actually happens is, once you have departmental members attached to a department with a due loyalty to that department, effectively, when you get to votes on the floor of Timwald, a combination of the Council of Ministers' votes, nine, plus the departmental members, let's say there's three in the department, that's 12, effectively, that guarantees the Council of Ministers neo-control of the House of Keys. And for those who think that LegCo is not important, I would say, beware. The only way, effectively, in normal circumstances, that Timwell's will can override the will of the Council of Ministers is if LegCo members, the eight, choose to vote with the minority in Keys who are regularly and almost constantly outvoted. The idea as well that oh, something's going wrong in a department, it's the minister's fault, change the minister and all will be well. Well, it's a, it's a pretty good technique if, you want, if you're running a system that can get rid of and replace ministers regularly because it, it's a catharsis, everybody feels better, but it achieves nothing very much at all. A minister is the head of it. What really matters is how the driver, what matters is how well that machine, that car is actually running. Another area of, of serious concern about the departmental system is the fact that they are self-regulating, almost have been historically self-regulating. In other words, not only are they a legal entity on their own right, but actually they consider their own strengths and weaknesses and report on them as they see fit, rather than that process of, ex uh, of review and scrutiny happening externally. What you can see is a, is a picture developing of very, very powerful departments, as it were, controlling the agenda to a much greater extent than, than is actually healthy, to the detriment, effectively, of the, the electorate. The next concern that exists is financial accountability. This is seriously inadequate, and I mean seriously inadequate. We're now one of the very few jurisdictions of any repute that hasn't got an Auditor General. This is a really serious matter. An Auditor General is not answerable to the Council of Ministers. An Auditor General would be accountable to Timwald and as such would have responsibility for reviewing and examining and auditing uh, departments independent of the Council of Ministers and, and observing a, a critique of them. It's almost without exception that a, a, the cost of an Auditor General is actually always, almost always exceeded by the money that they've saved. If it is the case that you run an organization that isn't a, being scrutinized properly in accountancy terms, it creates, in, in many circumstances, a sloppy approach, a, a self-justification process. If you know that you are going to be examined thoroughly, it will change the way that 
organization works. What have we got at the moment? Oh, incidentally, in the near future, this Mr. Speaker is going to give a talk to, he's going to give a talk on the importance of the Auditor General. The Public Accounts Committee, of which I'm a member, is working as hard as we can to get the message over. We must have an Auditor General effectively from an early part of the next administration. What have we got at the moment? <laughs> We've got something called Internal Audit Advisory. Now, what do Internal Audit Advisory do? I mean, when I first joined the PAC and I saw my first Audit Advisory report, I, I, I couldn't believe it. It was an audit of one of the primary schools. And one of the observations were, bullet, now I'm not joking here, one of the observations were that the, the, the teachers weren't counting the number of, sk of skipping ropes <laughs> that they had in stock, and that the button on the outside door was too low. And I remember, it's famous in the PAC now, it's called a skipping rope affair, but the point is that they... All they simply do is identify risk that would embarrass government. It doesn't deal with, is this organisation efficient in its delivery of services against the taxpayer, your funds, that they actually get. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. It's expensive. It's an expensive service provided, but it is not an Auditor General. So that's the next thing we need, is an Auditor General. The next thing is we need a separation between strategy and policy on the one hand and operations on the other. Now, each department, and this has caused so many difficulties over the years, I, I just can't begin to list them all, but when you have a department that is, is effectively a legal entity in its own right that isn't being scrutinised in an appropriate way, that isn't getting an audit process in the way that you would expect, then what actually happens is that when something comes along that is considered to be appropriate for that department and it's passed to it, and I'm talking here about a big capital project, oh, that's DOI, for example, it's passed to them and they suddenly have to elevate their game from being routine deliverers of, op of operational services at a much higher level to strategic thinking and project delivery, and they can't do it. Again, I could, you know, I've, I've got a fingers on my hands to, to give you examples of how that's failed. Failure in government can be traced back to a limited number of primary reasons, and that's, that's one of them. So we'll, we'll go on about that a little bit later on. The other issue is that Departments, because they're, they're fiefdoms and silos, they're not fully coordinated. Something that exists in one department may actually have interests in other departments, but actually, no, that department has the responsibility for that particular area, so let them worry about it, when in fact, it's a responsibility that exists across a number of departments and it never effectively gets properly dealt with. Let me give you four examples of where things have gone wrong. I've been around a long time, but about 20, 28 years ago, I think it was, I was still in the private sector, and somebody came along and said, Chris, we're, we're going to run the hospital administration through a private sector group who are going to advise the department, and they're responsible. And I was one of seven. There was me, an accountant, uh, uh, an advocate, uh, a doctor, a consultant, a district nurse, seven of us. I studied it for a year and a half and then I had to say, I can't do this anymore. 
but the shocking thing the shocking thing was this that very recently when Alf Cannon decided I'm going to do a serious review of the Department of Health and Social Care through Sir Jonathan Michaels and Alf said to me would, would I be the MHK representative on the advisory panel what was stunning was that all of, would I say 28 years later, 28 years later the problems in the department were exactly the same as I'd seen 28 years previously. Things had not moved on. I don't want to come over as a doom and despondency merchant. What I want to do is identify the key issues that must be resolved and then towards the end encourage you to believe we've started now to migrate to a, a greater understanding of these problems. But Sir Jonathan Michael's report um, came out, and, and what effectively he said is we have to separate the strategy and policy from the operations. So we're going to get Manx Care, and we're going to have a much slimmed down Department of Health and Social Care. Much slimmed down. Politicians, both ministers and members, will be doing the job that you sent us in there to do. Because often members, when they get allocated to a department, begin to think that they're managers. They get confused between a director manager and somebody who's supposed to be working at a much higher level at strategy uh, uh, and, and policy. The concept of Manx care coming into fruition, which is the operational side, will separate from the department itself and be the first step of this separation. Department, this is really topical now isn't it it's very contemporary department of education sport and culture i remember going back a few years ago that the one department that i didn't worry about this is really interesting i think it is to me anyway <laughs> was that you didn't worry about the education system because we were sort of proud of it a number of years ago I, I, can every, anybody remember that our, our education system's okay and then progressively things started to deteriorate and a year and a half ago and, and, and I like the chief executive personally of the the ex-chief executive of the Department of Education is a nice guy but I had to go to him a year and a half ago and I said Ronald what the hell is going on in your department when are you going to start caring for your teachers and they'd lost the plot somewhere and I I, I've given this an awful lot of thought, obviously, as, as you would in, in this job. The fault line occurred when education stopped being an operational organisation concerned about the school and the children, and instead became a department, a department of, of sport, culture, education, sport and culture. And slowly, that mindset in the department HQ developed separate to the schools and it was almost as if the schools were an annoyance to the to the the dynamic that existed in the department and that was the fundamental flaw and the the, the turning point was obviously the point when hundreds and hundreds of teachers turned up at Comis to express their concern anxiety uh, and it, it's translated into money about pay but if you've been in business, anybody who's been in business here, if you get a serious crisis and, and it's about money, you know it's a lot more than that. It's about the culture. It's about relationships. It's about respect. It's about being cared for. None of that was going on. It had fallen apart. 
and the department couldn't see it. I remember prior to the inspection that we've recently had, I remember in a small short debate in, in Timwald about education and I watched the members of the Department of Education stand up and vehemently defend the department during the time that things were really in crisis. And that shows how the mindset of a departmental member can be distorted. Those members should have been separate from the operation and been able to, to give independent judgment and said to themselves, now this isn't right, but they didn't. I don't know whether anybody else did, but I actually went to the centre many months ago and I said, you have to sort this out. You have to have an independent review of the department. It's dysfunctional. Give the Chief Secretary's view, that's what we got. It was headed, rightly so, by the Chief Minister. What was the result? Remember the, the result of the health and social care review under Sir Jonathan Michaels, the uh, separation of strategy and policy from operations. What did the Beeman's report say? What you've got to do is you've got to do the same as you did in health, which is, to be boring, separate strategy from operations. We're going to migrate to a situation, hopefully, where those two things are separated. And just as in health, the department will shrink down in size and ultimately there'll be a, a, an education board which is totally interested and focused on the operational side. And in both cases, both health and education, scrutiny will be moved externally from the operation. Do you remember we were talking about that earlier, about you have to have your, um, your, your scrutiny side, your business, professional scrutiny side, not the parliamentary scrutiny. You have to have that moved and separated from the, the control of the chief executive and the minister because that's ludicrous, and that's where we were. It was possible to hide things and park things and suppress things, and, and it was the inevitability of a, distort, a dysfunctional system. And I don't know how much you've followed the Beeman's report, but it's pretty damning. It, it says that, you know, it's broken. I believe we we'll, won't be long now before the education system starts to come back into, into the right place. I've got DOI on the list now. now I, I, promised, I promised Roger it's going to be 30 minutes. I don't know how long I've taken so far, but I could do 30 minutes on D I could do two hours on DOI. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. And here I want to talk again about the... the confusion between operational delivery and strategy and policy. Uh, I don't know how long ago it was. It's not that long ago. A year or so, two years ago, I can't remember. That the, the Department for Infrastructure came out with the strategy for harbours. And um, the the, Tim made a mistake in putting me on all but one, the, the, the scrutiny committee. So I, I have a, a pretty privileged position. I can see right across the piece. Um, almost through all the departments, in fact all of them one way or the other. And I'm on the Environment and Infrastructure Policy Review Committee and we looked at the strategy, so-called strategy, and <laughs> we didn't think much of it. So we called, listen to this, we called in the advisor, the, the professional advisor, Royal Haskinen, a, a world-renowned consultancy company that deal with harbour strategy. Um, the Environment and Infrastructure Policy Review Committee had him in front of, uh, uh, of us in oral session in public, 
And I remember saying to him, um, so, um, is this your strategy? He said, no. I said, well, okay, um, if you were starting from a blank piece of paper, is this what you would have um, ended up with? He said, no. And yet, when DOI went to the floor of Timwell, they said, this is our strategy, and it's been examined by the uh, Royal Haskinen. It, it was a shambles, and we ripped it to pieces. We, as usual, lost the vote, because going back to that point that I talked about, about council minister vote plus membership vote, we lost the vote and won the argument again, and that, that keeps happening. And that strategy has sort of faded away into oblivion, as it should do, because it was a disgrace. Why, why is it a disgrace? It's a disgrace because DOI should be an operational division. It, is not it should not be responsible for strategic issues when they haven't got... And it's no disrespect to any officer in DOI, but they haven't got the competence to work at that level. It's just not in their experience and, 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 and understanding. So what happened was um, a, an officer at a very operational level decided he wanted certain things to happen and progressively over time it migrated it up into what they were calling a strategy and was passed by Timmel because DOI said that their consultants said you know it's it's okay but they didn't I mean that's ex I mean, this, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of pounds here so that was a, a glaring example of the the conflating of strategy and, and operations into one organization that have the independent capacity to deliver these things through the Council of Ministers. Remember what I said? Each minister worries about his or her particular area so things can go past them. They haven't got the time to examine the detail of it so it goes past them onto the floor of Timwold and then Timwold passes it because the Council of Ministers and the members together ensure that it passes. And it did, but it, because the scrutiny committee examined it and said this is not good enough, it died of embarrassment, as it should do. Uh, and finally, uh, as a, a final example, Department for Enterprise. Just change hats here. I'm chairman of the Economic Policy Review Committee. And we decided that it was appropriate to look at the tourism strategy. And I, of course, I, as, as Roger said, I've got some considerable experience in this area. Um, we did it for a very specific reason, that, that tourism, hospitality as a whole, has been going through an absolute agony over the last year, and there's some way to go before we get to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I thought it was important for us to do a major review of where we are and where we should be going in order to try to create some sense of hope in the sector, because it's it's on its absolute beam end at the moment. I mean, it's gone past the point where people feel angry about things. They're they're in despair now. You know that that sense that when you're in real despair, you go past anger and it goes into a sort of a quiet acceptance. That's where we are. So we thought, no, we'll do we'll do an examination of what the future of the sector is <coughs> uh, and um, how we can deliver it. We started from a, a, a very straightforward, we, we didn't do a full review of everything. What we did was we said, okay, can we go back in time a little bit to find a good report? There's another one of the failings of government. 
a good report that's sound and we, we, we can respect. And we, quickly enough, we found the Hotel Solutions Report of 2016 and 2017, which outlined very, very clearly what the issues were. Problem is, they were never, they were never acted upon. So the Department for Enterprise had commissioned a, 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 a highly, bless them, well done, a highly competent organization to do an analysis of the hospitality sector. But when pu pu push came to shove, they didn't enact it. And you've heard this before, so forgive me for the repetition. You've heard it from me and others many times. But the, the amount of time that government produces good reports and never then acts upon it is a legion. I mean, it, when I first started working in, in Douglas in uh, 1977 um, I remember very well then that there were re regular reports and next year's forecasts and the glossy brochure about what the various divisions of government were doing but that it was like as everybody collapsed at the end of the producing the report and went back to sleep again till the following year when another report was made now because they didn't act upon that extremely good report it's it's resulted in the hospitality sector being in a pretty poor competitive position compared to um, competitors elsewhere. And, and so that's another example of where an operational element has reached into strategy and then didn't know how to deliver it. Why? In this instance, and if you read the, the, the consultancy report, you'd understand why. The report requires, this is interesting, requires a number of areas of government to cooperate together to deliver a coherent cross-departmental strategy for the future of tourism. But what's the attitude of the other departments about something like that? Oh well, that's Department for Enterprise. Tourism's their responsibility, it's not ours. Don't bother us with it. But it's about planning and it's about the environment and it's about infrastructure. And everybody has to sign up to a strategy for tourism cross-departmentally. So you, be, you can begin to see why I'm so passionate about this idea of bringing government together as a single organization that deals with strategy at a high level and then passes the detail of it down with instructions to the operational providers. Of course, the operators themselves will have competencies and comments to make about these issues and that will feed up. But all I've described so far is that things come from the bottom up instead of very careful, clever, strategic thinking uh, downwards and the two should meet and, and they don't. What's interesting about the first two reports that w were commissioned, that's Department for Health and Department for Education, neither of them were commissioned by the department itself. In the case of health, Alf Cannon commissioned the, the report through Sir Jonathan Michaels because he was really worried about the constant escalation of costs without understanding where it was going. And the Department for Education, uh, Sport and Culture didn't come from the department because they were in denial. It came from the centre this time. It came from Cabinet Office uh, and then was, was led by the Chief Minister. So it's interesting how the really acerbic reports are not commissioned by the departments themselves. I, I've been pretty 
da pretty damning about the departmental system as it stands. Um, and I hope I've given you some flavour of it. But what should good government look like, taking into account all I've just said there? Well, it should be a single legal entity. And, and Chris Thomas improved that while he was Minister of Policy and Reform and came out with a new name, which was uh, One Public Service. And single legal entity is really boring and cold and what is he talking about? But One Public Service, as came out of uh, Chris Thomas's mind, was, yeah, that's what we're trying to achieve, One Public Service. So um, I, I went with Chris from that point onwards. It, was, it became One Public Service. We've said strategy and policy must be separated. I think I've given you know, colourful examples as to why that's necessary. We must move regulation and inspections out of the operating departments and collect them together separately and answerable quite independent from the departments that they're examining. We need an Auditor General. Remember, that's separate from, uh, from the executive side altogether. We need to also improve the, the function of Timwald, and, and that could be best described by recognising that this business about having loads and loads of departmental members to, to, to get your block vote through Timwald has got to stop. Why? Because it makes for bad decision-making. If you can get something through Timwald, because you know you've got the votes, do you really examine it to the extent that you should? Does it get the scrutiny that it really deserves? The answer is no on both of those counts. So um, um, I, I've always taken it. I've, I've been so um, vehement about this departmental membership thing that I've never been a departmental member. And when I've been a minister, if I had departmental members, they were forced on me. And when they were, they didn't like the idea that they didn't get special delegations, like, for example, in social care. And I said, look, I'm, to the, my colleagues, I said, I'm not going to give you delegations. I said, when we're taught, you, I said, you need to know about everything that's going on in this department. So you need to go everywhere, look at everything. And when we have departmental meetings, I want your opinion from your perception of what you've seen, so that rather than being a super specialist on one subject, which... We're lay people, for goodness sake. We're elected by the, the people. We're not super specialists. We're there to represent you. So um, reducing the number of departmental members is very important. And then what we also need to do, I'll come back to this in a, a little bit later, developing uh, of key policy priorities better understood by the electorate and opening new doors for engagement with the people of the Isle of Man, which I would... I believe is the way to deal with this frustration that exists that people aren't engaged in, in being able to express themselves about the things that really matter. So what I, what I want to do now is, is, is just spend a few minutes talking about the experience that I personally had. As, as Roger said, I came in in 2010. I spent the first year trying to suss the, the whole situation out. I thought I'd end up in, in Treasury or, or Department for Enterprise or De Department for Economic Development as it was then. Um, I think I was so shocked by the children and family situation at the time. It wasn't that long after the death of Samantha and George. Does anybody remember that? And it was, you know, 
social care had, had been thrown together um, previously by Tony Brown, and it was um, it was mental health, housing, the whole benefits and social security system, children, families, and adult elderly care, and all those sectors had problems. So w when Douglas East chose to re-elect me. I was then made a minister for that department. And my goodness me, was that a learning curve, big style, to see that government didn't understand the people that it was looking after because each segment of each department was looking after a particular responsibility but didn't understand everybody else. So it was the department of legs, didn't know anything about the department of your right ear. And this, so you didn't exist as a, as a, as a citizen. You, you existed in a myriad of documents and systems all over the place that weren't, that weren't together. And, and that was the point at which I thought, goodness me, this isn't working. I mean, the first decision was social department of social care shouldn't be here. Um, because, I mean, it was crazy that the Department of Social Care had um, mental health as part of its remit, and yet the, the health of the body was in another department. It was like as if there's been a, a super lobotomy where mental health was in one part of government and, and bodies were in another part. We said no, and we, as quickly as we could, got mental health over to, to, to health. And then, quickly, as quickly, well, it was, took a long time, but I mean, it was three years, we got social care into health because that's effectively where it, it, it belonged. As Rogers explained, I then spent a very short time shutting down the, the Department of Community, Culture and Leisure. And then Alan, by this time, who was beginning to understand quite clearly that there was a problem about the centre being non-existent. It was just a periphery of departments. That the Cabinet Office was brought into being, and he asked me, would I, would I do that? And I said, yes, I would. Um, and I spent a year in that role, just over a year, I think, um, working out what was required. And I more or less then said then what I'm saying tonight, that we've got to reinvent ourselves here if we want a modern government that, that serves the people, that <coughs> understands the citizens' needs and works for the citizen rather than the citizen working for the department. We, one of the peculiar things we once did was look how many forms you had to fill in in how, in, a, in how many different departments if a relation uh, or somebody for whom you were an executor or executrix had to fill in. It's just extraordinary. You spent days wandering around filling forms in, repeating everything. And that was where the, the, the concept of we tell us once. And we've got a long way to go, but that was, that was the start of it. Anyway, it came to a head. I can't remember when it was. And... There was tension building up between myself and the rest of the Council of Ministers because I've seen we need radical change here, people. And um, it, it really got to quite a, a, a tense point, and that tense point was we can't deal with this. So it, it came to the head. I, I did a presentation. I said, this is what you've got to do. And the, the rest of the Council of Ministers, who by this time were nicely comfortable in their ministerial roles and were thinking about already the next election and how they would look. And they said, no, Chris, we don't want to do it. And I said, well, it was quite a calm you know, conclusion. Look, if, if you really don't want to do this, um, I understand, I don't agree, uh, but don't expect me to stay because there's no point. I'm not going to hang around here and then get the blame for not um, 
taking radical steps to review government if you guys don't want it. So I stepped down. And I'd only ever intended to stand for, for a five-year session. You know, I'm getting on. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it five years and do my best. So I thought, as we migrate, in fact, I said, um, it's time for me to go. But I became, excuse me, <coughs> I became more and more concerned about the serious nature of the problem we had about structure that I, I decided that I would stand again. And, and I, if, you, if there's any Douglas East people here, you'll know that I went round with this, what I call the little book of government reform. And people were saying, Chris, will you do this and that? And I said, no, no just read the, bro the brochure. It's like hotelier. <laughs> read the manifesto. And if you don't agree with it, please don't vote for me. And I said that time and time again. And much to my surprise, I actually got in. Um, and so another, I mean, my wife wasn't very pleased, but there you go. But I, I was committed, and, and I'm passionate about this, and it must happen for the greater good of the Isle of Man. So one of the first things I did when I got uh, re-elected was moved a motion on the floor of Timber to the effect that we needed a select committee on single legal entity, or as now Chris would have us say quite rightly, one public service. Although it wasn't one public service at that stage. Now, I, I wanted a separate committee, but uh, Howard, who's not a radical politician, um, didn't want the idea of something outside the control of Council of Ministers. But by this time, there was a sort of a, an undercurrent of feeling amongst a number of members that actually there's something in this and we need to sort of look at it. And, and I think wisely, rather than try and reject it, he passed an amendment which made it the, the committee, a subcommittee of the Council of Ministers. And then he loaded the membership of that committee. Fortunately, because by this time Chris Thomas was uh, Minister of Policy and Reform, we were in safe hands because you can't... You can't put much between myself and Chris in terms of where we believe we should be going on this whole thing about a, a unified uh, a government. And uh, we produced, and I'm going to answer Roger's point in a second here, we produced our, re our first report which said many of the things that I've just been discussing here, we need to do this, 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 this and this, and out went the report. It was an interim report. There is another report, and it does exist, but there we go. When that report went out, um, don't think that other jurisdictions are not suffering similar uh, problems to, to us. Jersey and Guernsey both had their problems. Within eight months of our single legal entity committee report coming out, Jersey went straight to a single legal entity. And Chris, you'll remember that they actually referred to our committee work uh, in, a, in, a, in a, a very sort of um, complimentary way. They'd, we'd done the work for them and they just got on with it. And, and converted to a single legal entity. They rushed the fences. They went too fast in some areas. And, and I think they understand that. But they understand as well why they need to do it. Sometime later, Guernsey, who went on another journey uh, and, and have gone to an quite an unusual sort of committee system structure, recognized one element of our report, which was effectively that you needed to separate strategy off from policy. And that's what they did, literally. I can't remember the name of the, the chief executive. White, Whitfield, is it? I think it's Whit, Peter Whitfield. 
And he produced this radical statement which went flying around Guernsey saying, we've got to separate policy and strategy off and we've got to do X, Y and Z. Although it was a good report, it sort of died a bit of a death on the Isle of Man, to some extent, a bit of a death on the Isle of Man, but was picked up and reacted on in other jurisdictions because they got what we were effectively saying. Um, anyway, uh, time, time sort of moved on um, and the, the, the work has continued, the, the, the arguments have, have carried on. And then something remarkable happened, which was a major crisis, COVID. And the remarkable thing is this, that in order to deal with the, the crisis, government had to act differently, and it did. And, and I'll be the first to compliment the incredible work that a number of officers put in to making sure that we, we had something that made sense, that could enjoy uh, public support, which it did, brilliantly uh, but believe me the work that went on in very very difficult circumstances in, in lockdown quite quite honestly has earned my eternal respect amongst a number of of really hard-working uh, civil servants that broke the ice didn't it because it was no longer you couldn't deal with covid in silos or in in a sort of a, this is our fiefdom for, 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 for once, the officers were freed of the shackles of these tight uh, silos and could operate cross-departmentally. And they did, and they did it with a vengeance and earned all our respect. But that let the genie out of the bottle. And this is, this is where, the, as it were, the good news starts, really. Because more people have begun to understand that if government's going to serve the people, it's got to be a coherent body that works together. Um, I, I mentioned the tourism one, about if you want a tourist strategy, it's got to be owned by a whole range of departments. So that's why, and it's just one example of many, many situations that don't work um, uh, in silos. Um, I remember Daphne, uh, was children's champion um, f f for some time and I could see the frustration on, on Daphne as she exercised herself in this uh, very important responsibility where she was constrained within a, a silo but actually knew that if she was going to achieve things she had to work cross-departmentally and this happens again and again and again and, and what I am saying is that we have to get to the point where we have the courage to say, no, we have to migrate to a one public service. The departments will all be there, but there'll be operational departments. The centre will strengthen with the ability, not itself necessarily, to devise strategy, but to know where to look for the best advice and to bring it in, whether it's on-island, off-island, a mixture of both, a mixture of off-island, on-island and, and, and government, to form that... Uh, clear and clever policy that then is migrated down to the operational divisions. And that essentially is what the single legal entity is about. How does this interact with the, with the electorate? And, and, and that's sort of the next step. As long as we get the unified one public service and we get the ability to identify our top clear strategic mind 
and identify those and articulate them. That's the point at which government can better engage with the electorate. At the moment, back to this, the beginning of what I was saying about the frustration that exists for the elector because you can choose a personality and that personality then gets sucked into a system which um, granulates everything and that person has a deal of a problem then to deal with the things they're passionate about or even to make sure that they migrate to a strategic position. So you sort of lose your, outside of constituency work, you lose that relationship between the electorate and the government. But once we have a one public service uh, organization and it has the strategic capacity to identify the big things that matter, then that's the point that the government should engage with the electorate and start to get real-time feedback as to what the electorate feel about it. In my manifesto, I talked about a, a program for government, and we got one, but it was a bit pretty weird. Um, when we, when we, it was well-intentioned. It was everybody putting their thoughts in, but it was, um, it was a bit secondary schoolish, really, because it was, it was charts on the wall, and we all had to put our thoughts down, and they were collated into a great big monolith. And if you read the, the program for government, it's a very complex document. It means well. But it's a very complex document, both vertically and horizontally. So if you, if you want to follow a particular initiative across it, it belongs to this person who then relates to that person, who then it's chaotic. It, 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 it is. Strategy should be simple and clear to understand at the highest level. And I think once we get a one public service, then it opens the door, as I've said earlier, to far more coherent and understandable relationship with the electorate so government can better understand what it is that the people want of their government. Not only in policy terms, but as technology develops, then we, I hope that the, the myriad of paperwork which we're trying to get rid of uh, slowly dissipates and disappears and becomes much more a question of you telling government, like in Estonia, for example, this is what I want you know a simple code system and you're in and it's done so um, I, I, I hope that my message despite being um, pretty acerbic all the way through does give you a feeling of hope that because of something so horrible as COVID that because it was a crisis it actually brought out in government what it actually needs to do and it's time now to build on that. And all I would say, um, please, is, is, is care about how the machine works, the car works, as well as the driver. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, I'm going to kick off the questioning by saying there's a, currently a logjam in the legislative process, it would appear. How will the suggestion that you've got affect that program in as much as what legislative changes will, will be needed? I don't want any detail, just an overall opinion. What legislative changes are needed to, to create a, a single legal entity or one? Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a complex process. The, the process, the, the complexity isn't in the essence of it. It's more in the adjustment that you'd have to make to a myriad of detail um, in current legislation. 
Um, in other words, everything refers to departments, this departments, that, but it would be effectively the government. So it, it, it would be, it, it would be um, somewhat problematic, but certainly surmountable. Okay. Right, it's over to you, the electorate, and we've got Andrew Bentley to kick off. Thank you, Chris. Enjoyed your speech very much there. Um, where Thank do you, you see the relationship between local government and central government as legal entities? Well, I'm, <laughs> um, how, let me just quickly talk about what good government should look like in terms of its relationship with the, with the uh, individual citizen. At the moment, if, if you, and I, I dealt with this quite in, uh, in quite a lot of detail in something called a great debate which the big debate which got an awful lot of criticism but um, it was it was on my part it was well intentioned it was explaining how if you really know about government you can handle government because you know where to go and who to speak to but effectively if you don't know about government you've got to work out well which department do I need to go to and where's the office and who is it that I want to speak to it's a quite a complex process it shouldn't be like that it should be much much more simple that the government is there for you. In other words, you know this one-stop shop thing? Now, part of that is the concept of developing regionality, you know, uh, north, west, east, and south. So you don't have to come trundling into Douglas and find the particular office. You should be able to deal with the vast bulk of the things you need to deal with in the region that you're in. Um, and that manifests itself in the uh, Sir Jonathan Michaels report where we will progressively migrate to regionality. One of the things I've been passionate about for a long time is reducing the number of housing authorities down to a limited number, putting the tenant in control of that relationship rather than being somebody in a very small organisation that can't transfer houses because their jobs move from Peel to, to Ramsey, for example. All in all, to cut a long story short, Local government should become regional. Now, it, there's too many small authorities at the moment. I don't think necessarily a, a, a small authority should completely lose its, its identity. However, I do think that, for example, I mean, how many is there now, Chris? How many local authorities are there? 21. It's dropped a little bit. I, I, I think that, that there should be four or five. I mean, it's arguable as to how many. But people still sh should still be voted from their original uh, parish commissioners or local commissioners into a into a bigger organization and for those people it would be much more exciting because the responsibilities would grow and the relationship between the politicians in the region and the development of regional services would over time would grow so i, I think we're in a, a not a very good place at all at the moment and um, it's not something people like to tackle, but at some point it needs to. It doesn't have to happen exactly the same time as a, a one public service, but it's starting to surreptitiously happen now in, in a number of different ways. Andrew, are you happy with that? Yes, I, something that, I mean, the relationship between you and I as our territories overlap. I, I just think it's crazy that there's nowhere else in the world where every time there's a cracked pavement or somebody's not happy about a parking area, I'm, I'm afraid it's something that you have to speak to the guy in the legislature about. It's not mm. in my remit. Mm. And it was always that question of how, how do we get... I mean, most of these things are within the remit of the Inf Department of Infrastructure, that when it comes to reporting cracks in pavements, which 
I mean, in the areas that we serve, continuity of pavements is a major issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people trapped in very small areas of, yeah. because they don't have the, uh, the accessibility. Yeah. I, and I it's mean, I mean, channel. talking about DOI and responding mm. to those things, DOI is far too big. Mm. And, the, and the process, coming back to the original, you know, the, 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 the architecture of the discussion this evening, as, as strategic issues migrate to the centre and, and op division departments become operational, then the next process after that is you should start developing arm's length organisations and pushing them out. So government then starts to shrink. It's too big. In the last house, I think you'll be aware that we reduced the number of people by 300. And in this house, they've gone back up 200. Now, in the, in the current environment, with the pressures and tensions, econo tensions economically, we can't cope with this. And we've got some, got some pretty big things coming, like when the pension fund runs out in two years' time, there's going to be a 40 to 50 million pound hit to the annual account uh, each year thereafter ad nauseum. And then we've got the other issues we're facing as well. So it's an absolute prerequisite that comes out of this reorganization of government that it starts to shrink in size. And that's an absolute necessity, which will in part place more responsibilities on the growth of uh, regional uh, local authorities that are very aware of the pavement that's, that's cracked or whatever else it is that you're having to deal with. Local issues should be dealt with locally. Okay. Thank you, Chris, and I agree entirely we need a unitary government. At the moment, we're in danger of our uh, sick service or our health service bankrupting the country. So I'm going to hand out a number of leaflets at the end, one in particular uh, related to COVID, because that issue around the world can stop all our future growth unless we have some honesty. And so that's the first thing. On that uh, leaflet will be my email address, and perhaps we could collate what the burning issues are for this country, this wonderful country in which I'm a guest. So we all have a great passion for it. I served for some time in Cabinet Office with John Shimin and saw how hard it was to get this together. But I think we've got a golden opportunity compared with anywhere on earth to make this a great, healthy country. So the question really is, can we take it forward where we have truth, transparency, accountability at the centre. So my email address will be on the leaflet and could we then ask perhaps Roger, once we collate those ideas, to put on a PAG meeting to say what really ails us because I think we live in the best place on earth. So thank you very much. Um, I'm, that's, I accept your promotion of a particular uh, line of thought but if I can just pick out one element and answer that which is accountability, transparency and open, openness. The, the, the model I was talking about before where uh, audit was poor, inspection was internal and control was absolute within the department is not the mechanism that's going to deliver transparency and openness. Whereas if you take, you apply audit, review, um, uh, uh, inspection, regulation externally, properly externally, and then rebalance timber so it doesn't come so powerfully uh, allow the Council of Ministers to dominate the voting system. Those, those things together would work massively over a period of time to improve uh, transparency. I, I just want to plug one thing, and forgive me for saying this, and one of, my, one of the aims that I had in this administration was to improve scrutiny. 
Um, and, and I think we've succeeded because instead of, instead of being this sort of yaboo sort of politics on the floor of Timor, people making a noise and throwing things out, um, I, I hope there's a, there's a beginning of an understanding that the policy review committees are working really hard to do sensible things. And sometimes they will say to government, we think you're doing okay there, uh, but we might also say, well, actually, not here, and will you please consider such and such a thing. So it's the second voice it's the alternate voice, it's the, and it's really, it's really, I mean, I, I think we've made a lot of progress this year. So the, the problem, of course, is that currently the system, as, as uh, Lord Lisvane said, massively favours those who work in departments, you know, trapped by the department effectively. Um, it, it does not favour uh, parliamentary scrutiny. And currently, the Emoluments Committee, again, of which I'm part, is trying to move towards a rebalancing of that. So the concept of scrutiny in a parliamentary environment becomes a respected part of the process rather than an irritation and annoyance uh, to, to the executive. Thank you. Thank you. Dennis um, Hi. Um, just taking back to uh, what you said about the tell us once uh, strategy, which I think came out a few um, few years ago, which obviously ties in with what you were talking about um, this evening. Um, <coughs> from what I remember, uh, a lot of objection to that was that every bit of information about a particular individual, personal information, would be oh, excuse me. <coughs> will be shared with um, every government department so that um, every Tom, Dick and Mary and every working for government will be able to access every bit of uh, personal information no matter how irrelevant it was and uh, obviously the dangers for that. Um, obviously that strategy could be improved if, um, <coughs> if that control of that data was segmented, kept segmented, um, so that the particular department it was rele relevant to could have full access to that, but also the control of it was actually held by. <coughs> Sorry about that. Held, <coughs> held by the individual um, himself or herself, so that um, it was up to them to actually release what parts of it that was relevant in a particular situation. I mean, that can easily be. Um, done uh, with the current blockchain technology and the other advantage of that is that that information could be released to for example financial institutions that need KYC or CDD documentation um, you wouldn't need um, you wouldn't need um, censuses and, and stuff like that um, <coughs> but uh, I mean the technology is, is now available so would you be in favour of that? But obviously that would involve the, <coughs> the information being um, held and controlled by the individual. Well, you, absolutely yes, yes and yes, <laughs> because I, I think we've migrated in, in that direction more slowly than we would want for the very simple reason that it's not acceptable for personal data to be uh, available to, to, as you say, Tom, Dick and Harry. Um, and... Yes, absolutely. We have to put the citizen in charge of the data and nobody else. And I think the, the Alamance has gone more slowly down this route because of the impositions that it needs to find answers to. And again, um, I think when this started, blockchain wasn't 
um, as well understood, is perhaps the right way to put it, as it is now. Uh, it's an extraordinary tool. Um, and when we get to the point where we fully understand how we can make all this work and put the citizen in charge of his own data, then that's a magnificent point because I'm sure, although we don't want to, I think I think you agree with this. Although we, it's absolutely essential that personal data remains personal. Um, generic uh, uh, data, uh, as it were, across the population could provide magnificent information to make government a better process. You'd accept that latter point, would you? Yeah, well, um, but I, I think where I would slightly disagree with you is yeah. that um, there is the expertise on the island and there is a company that actually um, is able to do that and has the, has the people that can do that. So if you'd like me to, uh, if you'd like them to contact you. Um, yes, I would. Yeah. I, I, I would. I, I would say that um, we've still got to c overcome some silo mentality within GTS. Uh, which is a bit protective about its particular fiefdom. Um, but there's work going on in, in that area. But I, I totally get where you're coming from. Thanks, Greg. Next question from Rich Powell. Thank you, uh, Roger, it's, what, what I'd like to do is second what Courtney Heading proposed earlier, that there are, I know of many people on the Isle of Man who are concerned about a number of serious issues. Um, and I wonder if you'd be willing to look at convening a positive action group meeting where one could have a question time like event where citizens could voice you know, concerns that they have which are not only serious but pressing I would say in many ways. Yes Richard. Uh, question for you. Speaking. Yep. Um, yes we're always looking for new topics to discuss at positive action group as long as it's a political topic. Um, so, yeah, we certainly consider that. Peter Taylor. Peter. Um, Chris. Hi. Um, actually, I found it very interesting because I remember your 2010 by-election, which means I've been coming here since about 2008, <laughs> 2007. Since when we've been talking about the block vote and nothing has changed, um, when I hear all of this, I thank all the work that you've done and Chris has done. Yeah. But I've got three questions. Okay. And they're very specific. Right. And this comes from a, a lifetime doing change management in companies. It's leadership that changes businesses, not the systems in them. Blockchain won't change anything in government. It's leaders who will change it. So what has stopped it? Is it the leaders and I'm talking about chief ministers here, mm. is it that they don't want to change it, or does the legal system really stop them changing it? And by the way, when you've changed it, are there the ideas there to implement, um, or is it that we're just bankrupt of ideas and hiding behind all the excuse that we need to change the structure of government sort of covers that up? So, so there are the three, three questions. Is it the leaders can't change it or they don't want to change it? And are you and Chris, after your eight years there, comfortable that if you could change it, there are the radical ideas there that could make the island significantly different to the way it is? Um, who's stopping change? Uh, well, 
it's political more than its officer. I mean, the surprising thing about this is that in my time in politics, I've come across very many frustrated um, uh, civil servants who want change but have to sit harnessed into the existing system. I, I, I tried to cover the answer to that in my comments about ministers who once they migrate to that position are not as comfortable with change as they should be. In other words, they've got there, they want to be... This thing about, yes, Minister, I'm sure you all remember that, it's real. Because if you, if you have, if you're elevated to a minister of a department, it's a massive ego trip to have a thousand people saying, yes, Minister, no, Minister. I mean, you, you absolutely are very comfortable in that environment. So, um, at the moment, my view is that there are more officers um, who are keen to get the change to happen than there are senior politicians. But, and but isn't that the role of the Chief Minister? Yes, yes it is. I'm trying to be delicate here. I, 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 I'm tiptoeing round this. Maybe I shouldn't. To, uh, Howard doesn't like change. He's comfortable. Um, and I'm... What I, I mean, I'm retiring in September. All I'm trying to do is, is inculcate into the minds of as many of the members of Keys the importance of this issue. So if they get back in, there'll be a greater volume of members who say, yeah, this is the sort of thing that we need to do. But it would require a change of chief minister in order to achieve it. Um, your second question was, well, is there a dearth of ideas? Not at all. If we can get to the point, and there's no inhibitor other than the will of the Council of Ministers. That's the only thing that's really in the way. Some, some of the members of the Council of Ministers understand this. A, num a significant number of members do. And I'm just hoping, I, I've got all my fingers crossed here, that when members come back in, in the, at the next House, that a leadership is developed that is going to say, yeah, we get that. We get that. And the big exemplar here has been look what they did with covid look what happened there look what you can do and it's still it's still um, moving on i mean this morning uh, the, the members are in the room will will recall that we had a a, a, um, a look at the where's the where's the economy now and it, the encouraging thing and i made comment on it is that the team looking at it isn't just treasury it's treasury it's somebody from here it's somebody from there and they've all come together, they've been seconded from wherever they work normally because they had a particular competency to deliver to the team. And I said, that's the way things need to go. So I think, yes, we can find the leadership after the next election. And yes, there's an awful lot of really good things that can come out of it. Does that answer your question? Is there any, have I missed anything? No. Okay, thanks. Muriel Garland. Muriel, hello. I didn't know you were in Hello, Hiya. Chris. Hiya. Would you stop ministers from referring to my department? Um, at the moment, I, I, I think the change that we need would actually almost deal with that because they're on this pinnacle. They are the yes minister character and it's mine. But in a, in, a, in a single legal... Oh, and let me just tell you something else that used to happen when I was a, a minister in the Council of Ministers. If something was going wrong... Imagine that's the Council of Ministers in that, in that corner there. One, two, three, four, five, almost. And one was in difficulty, 
say it was you. And you were, you were having a difficult time, a really difficult time. You could almost see the other minister going, oh, God, it's not me. At least I'm out of the limelight. It's their problem. Do you see what I mean? And whereas if it's going right, it's my department. <laughs> but in a, in a one um, public service organisation where collectively the Council of Ministers agree and sign up to a overarching strategy, then when things go wrong, they're all responsible for it. So it, it significantly diminishes this issue about my this and my that. Maurice Cottrell. I was the first to applaud this gent over here yeah. because he's starting at the top. And a lot of the things you've mentioned in my book, and I've been peddling not as long as you, is, is total quality assurance. Because that, the, the, the quality of your product and the quality of your organisation comes under the word total. And the commitment to operate in that sort of policy comes from the very top. Now, you, the example of COVID is a, a brilliant example of where you've identified a big problem. And a lot of people understand that solving problems in organisations is a total quality thing. I don't know whether you support me on this. And you, you get the... Because the island is the culture of what it is, and if you take somebody who's come from a large organisation and needs to, has got a policy, the policy is number one. The strategy is how you achieve that policy. And a lot of equality things do, do involve the level of below where you're supplying that service. But throughout it all, everybody is a customer. Mm. And so that you're looking to provide the best service to that customer. And you've seen with the... With the and I'm, I'm going to break off here, so not to go any longer. Yeah, yeah. The sort of problems we're talking about arising from COVID You've seen it in, in, with the Prime Minister in the UK. And he's got his personal advisors and a little group of sage people of a brainy people. And that's where your total equality says, have we got the ability, the capability? We were missing out on somewhere. What are you going to do about that? So the, and it, the, what, what Boris Johnson has caused is an upset within the civil service departments through bringing in some of these experts who are okay, they're under criticism. But without, and in the history of the evolution of the Isle of Man government, when I've seen the guy with the big mutton chop, what's it like this, and didn't want anything to do with the UK Parliament, and didn't want sort of uh, too much attendance there, we've seen Howard Quayle going and taking part, but he does get dressed up a bit, it's a nice ego trip. Right? So that uh, we could come back on to why as the the public, Where, why have they failed the public? And recently I referred to the 2019 Reef Lectures where an eloquent QC had done a series of lectures all around the UK, including Northern Ireland, but it doesn't include the Isle of Man. But, and it was, it's where you failed to understand the reaction and, but we've all stood there, the other gentleman here, talking about data collection. Google probably knows as much about what I feel about something than, than, than my local MHK. Okay. 
Well, it's, a, it's a bit difficult to sort of, I have to pick up half a dozen things there, but uh, I mean, to, as far as Google's concerned, you're not in control of that data, somebody else's, whereas it, it, on the Isle of Man, you, it, to have a successful system, you've got to be in charge of it, and you effectively release authority to government that certain actions can be taken on your behalf. That's, that's quite different to Google, because you are subject to uh, data about you held externally and out of your control, whereas the system here has to be uh, the, the absolute reverse of that. Um, well, coming back to the, to the COVID thing, and I, I don't want to repeat myself too often, but I mean, it, it, it did let the genie out of the bottle as far as people working cross-departmentally. It released a potential uh, in those who work in the public service that has been thus far suppressed and harnessed in a, a restrictive way. So much so, over my 10 years, I've seen some really good people leave government because they've been so, so frustrated with the, with the culture. Um, and, uh, and no, the government can't always have the in-house competency, but we have to have an ability within the organisation to know where to go to look to find it and bring it in and engage it, whether it's locally or away. So th those are the points I'd pick out. Are you, are you unhappy with that, or do you want me to answer any more points? Sorry, Maurice, I've got to cut across you because we're on nine o'clock and I need, really need to give the last word to Chris Thomas. Hooray! We've been <laughs> a few times tonight, so Chris Thomas. Thank you very much indeed, Chris. Yeah. Um, and my question, as the presiding officer who needs a question, is do you agree? That's the question. And this statement that I'm asking you to agree with, I think, might have three dimensions. The first one is, I it think... These questions are always complicated. <laughs> no, they're not. Very simple. first one is, I think, actually, Muriel nailed it. I think, you know, John, you gave me lots of advice. John Shimon gave me lots of advice when I started this role as another Minister of Policy and Reform, and he noticed straight away that I always referred to the government, but every other minister referred to my department or yeah, my yeah, government. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that's what civil servants and public servants mm. tell us. They all say in, our, in their Have Your Say surveys that, I, I work with my departmental colleagues, not for the one public service. So I do think that's really important. I think, you know, next time we should talk about the government much more rather than my department. Agreed. Okay, the second point is I think... Um, we agreed on that, so move on. Yeah. And the second point to agree, to see whether you agree, is that um, Peter asked about leadership, and I think uh, it can't be one-person leadership next time. A group of people have to go into Timwood, into the House of Keys, to form the next government working together with a, a draft program of government that's presented to the electorate for a mandate, like you did individually, like I did individually, but somehow, and I think Mrs Kane might be working on this behind the scenes, we need somehow to put together to put together something that a group of people can sign up to so that we can get leadership with strength from a, you know, from a collective position rather than just one person as a chief minister. We have to diminish the chief minister, in other words. We have to have the Council of Ministers, the Isle of Man government behind the next agenda for change. Do you agree? In no. I'll happily challenge you on the party thing of why it won't work in the Isle of Man, despite how attractive it might seem. It really won't. Um, in two parts, then. Um, Yes, I absolutely agree that the, the uh, decision-making process has to be collegiate at, at both Timwell and um, Council of Minister level. And I think the, the uh, vision that you and I share would ensure that the ownership of that 
leadership in council would be more more coherent and, and more collegiate. The other point that you make, I, I sort of alluded to, Chris, in the sense that I think this process is leading to that point where it becomes possible to engage with the public on, on a programme which is discernible and quite simple that people can sign up to and then engage more in, in uh, elections in a slightly different way. So I totally agree with that. I agree with Chris, which is the last programme for government, the one 16 to 21 was far too complicated oh. and complex. Yeah. It was just a, yeah. something put together by committee that didn't make any sense. So it has, mm. to be, it has to have collective leadership earlier. And the third point, to go back to what Peter asked you, I think the legal impediment is pretty easy to get over. We yeah. just need an amendment to the Council of Ministers Act. Later on, we need an amendment to the Government Departments Act. And later on, we need an amendment to the Statutory Boards Act. And the simple fact is that the Attorney General's Chambers has a, has a, a database of all of the functions and where they're currently vested. And they've been preparing for a long time to actually make those changes. So I think actually there's no real legal impediment. Do you agree? I, I, I do. And I, furthermore, <laughs> I think there are a number of civil servants who are really very anxious that this is promoted and pushed on because they are, they are frustrated themselves. And then finally, I think I slightly disagree with you because I blame civil servants more than you seem to. And I think the next um, council of ministers will need to be supported by some change people alongside um, alongside the council of ministers because I've felt as if, uh, as if you know, my explanation about why we didn't get anywhere this last three and a half years is because we have been, or I have been, outmaneuvered by the chief officer group. I've got to be frank. I think I could, I, it's a fair fight, Howard Quayle, and that sort of political resistance, but you can't take on, you can't take on the civil service and the chief officer group once you start threatening interests, even if the chief secretary wants okay. to be on your side and so uh, on. Well, I can agree with you in the sense that at one stage, the the resistance uh, within the chief officer group was, was almost total. Uh, I, I absolutely accept that. But when I was referring to the civil service, I hope I, sh I should have made it clearer that there's an awful lot of, once <laughs> being a chief officer of a, of, a, of a legal entity with massive control is, is a bit like being a minister. You don't want to let go of it. Um, and so the, the minister and the chief executive working, as it were, cohoots together. But when I was talking about civil service, there's an awful lot of really good officers in the system who really want change. And, and, and I am determined to, to encourage them to believe that change can happen. And while you have a chief minister who doesn't want the change, then those at the very top end are going to carry on, carrying on, aren't they? If that change comes, you, you, you see how quick <laughs> they spin round to, to, to protect themselves. So we sort of agree. Well, time has been missed. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, Thank you. You've only got 12 more months. 11, 11 and counting. 11, he says. <laughs> yes. So we wish you well with that. Yeah. And I thank you sincerely for coming back to Positive Action Group to present a very stimulating talk this evening to set us all thinking about some basic political premise that we perhaps haven't got here on the Isle of Man and that you've convinced me, certainly, we should have. So, can I ask you all to put your hands together and thank Chris very much. Thank you. Just finally, uh, uh, you did mention that we've got a meeting on the 26th of October. Um,
and we're hoping to have June Watterson, the Speaker of the House of Keys, to talk to us about the necessity, the necessity for having an Auditor General. Um, the following month, on the 30th of December, it's always the last Monday of the month we try and, uh, sorry, the 30th of November, I always get my months mixed up for some reason, the 30th of November, um, we've got Professor Peter Edge coming to talk to us about the election of a Chief Minister, whether we as the electorate should be allowed to uh, elect the Chief Minister. So these are themes that have perhaps been mentioned tonight and we hope to take it forward. And the reason we're hoping to take it forward is there's a very important occasion next September and that is the Isle of Man general election. And that's why we as a political lobby group are raising these issues. So I hope you've enjoyed tonight's talk and I hope that you'll come next time to the next Positive Action Group meeting. Thank you for your attendance. You've been listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Take care.